0: Hello friends, welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Hello friends, and welcome back as we binge the Bible. Joined here today with Bill Mayer. Hey everybody, welcome. And we're both dragging. We're feeling the effects of raising young children and needing more sleep and it's been gray the last couple days and i felt a spirit of nap time on me the last 36 hours spirit of nap is strong (laughs) so i am sitting here excited to jump into the content but i have a cup of tea for my throat and a cup of coffee for my bloodstream oh i thought you just had two cups of coffee (laughs) no i'm double dipping over here uh we took sunday to talk about the old testament book of ecclesiastes which was one of our days in our bible reading last week now we're in the middle of isaiah and um, lord's already given me a couple sermons for isaiah we'll see which one emerges uh in two weeks because this coming sunday if you're following along in real time is fifth sunday funday april the 30th 2023 so we won't have a sermon but we do have baptisms and uh, really fun stuff uh, to to enjoy time together as a church family, and it's going to be great. So um, if you're listening, follow along, come on out on Sunday and hang out with us. But we took some time in Ecclesiastes, and uh, we had an interesting weekend. We did have a baby dedication in third service, and Holy Spirit showed up to minister in a unique way in middle service, second service, and then uh, first service kind of got the more... Um, Full intellectual version of the sermon uh, but all three services were significantly different and so depending on what service you were sitting in you may have had a little bit of a different experience and so I want to recap a little bit about what we covered in Ecclesiastes and um, you may have heard this depending on what service you're in so that's why I start with a disclaimer but um, I broke down Ecclesiastes into four sections that really were prominent to me not in equal length um, but in terms of a theme, the the problem, which is set out for us in the prologue in chapter one verses one to eleven, and then the pursuit, which is in chapter two and following, which kind of starts really in chapter one verse twelve when the tone the p- person person voice changes, but all the way through two and and, um, and so that pursuit of a solution to this stated problem. And then along this journey of pursuing uh, an answer, Solomon brings us into these series of paradoxes, and we covered a couple of them in a couple of the services, Um, and chapter three kind of is one we kind of hung out on about there being a time for everything. So you grow up and you realize, okay, there's good things and bad things, and peace is good and war is bad, and you live long enough to recognize that while war is not good, sometimes war is necessary, and that means there's a time for it. And so. There's a time for peace, and there's a time for war, and there's everything is beautiful in its time, um, you know, and so we, ha- we have to start to see the world differently, and so you have this this paradox of recognizing the beauty of the time and the moment you're in under the sun, and yet that also, chapter 3 and verse 11, has us reminded that God's also put eternity into our hearts, and so you have this paradox, like we're part of something so much bigger than the time we're experiencing now. And so much larger and grander and longer than even the context of our own life and our awareness of history, um, near and far, and also our perspective of the future. So we have this tension, this paradox between, oh, I could just enjoy the moment, but I also know there's something more than this. And so we can't. We have this frustrating uh, reality. We can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But but the paradox becomes resolved. In the prescription and that is to orient your life toward god so you you don't get to know everything but you can know god and this is what the bible calls the fear of the lord so chapter 12 in verse 13 and 14 solomon the believed writer of ecclesiastes although unnamed tells us to fear god and keep his commandments this is the end of the matter this is the commandment do this and you'll be fine and he orients us towards God, a relationship with God. And so while we don't get to know everything, God is God, we are not, but we can know him, and therefore we can have meaning both in the seasons uh, that we're walking through, the present moment under the sun, we can experience the beauty of every season, even the the pain of loss and uh, the joys uh, uh, that life bring. So having a relationship with God is the thing that helps you to start to settle these paradoxes to go, I know the one who holds the future even though I don't know what the future holds. And I can accept the things from his hand, even the painful things, because I can see the beauty in them and I can understand the good that he's bringing about. And so this is kind of where Ecclesiastes ends. So you have the problem, the pursuit, the paradox, and the prescription. That was the last P. Now, that was kind of like two-thirds of the sermon, because I wanted to then take all of us into the New Testament, because in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, Jesus specifically says that the Queen of the South will rise up at the Day of Judgment, which was also one of the features at the end of Ecclesiastes, is that not only do we fear God and keep His commandments, but we recognize that a day will come when He will um, judge everyone by the deeds done in the body. Essentially, Judgment Day gives you this resolve that the things that don't seem to be fair now or are unjust now, God's going to make right. So Jesus references that day and He says the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, who had come to see Solomon and all of his wisdom, and to follow up on all the reports that she had heard of his greatness, Travels to see him and finds that not the half had been told to her. You can read all about it in 1 Kings 10. And Jesus said that she's going to rise up in the judgment and condemn the men of this generation um, because something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus is presenting himself as superior to the best king, wisest man, wealthiest person, most successful, uh, most prolific, Um author, like he's saying that Solomon's nothing compared to who's in front of you. And so we have to take that interpretive method as well. And then I brought everybody to John chapter three, where many of the same themes and words were brought into the conversation between uh, Nicodemus and Jesus. And so here we have uh, Ecclesiastes, which I I mentioned this in one of the services, and I, I should have mentioned it in all of them, but Ecclesiastes um, gets its title from a word, the Greek word that you should be familiar with if you've been in church in length of time, and that is ecclesia. It's right there in there. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, and that is to be called out, the called out ones. This is what Jesus, the the word that Jesus took to describe his followers and the kingdom of God on the earth, ecclesia. And so, ecclesiastes is class is in session. Like you're all called together, and it's. It's a name for the teacher. It's a way of saying, all right, the teacher's about to speak, so everybody's gathered to listen. And so the book is really called The Teacher or The Preacher. That's where Ecclesiastes comes from. The original Hebrew is uh, kohalet. And uh, the Greek word for teach is, uh, or not Greek, the Hebrew word for teach is uh, kohal. So kohalet is The Teacher. And so that's how we got this book. And so Solomon sets himself unnamed in his proper name, Solomon, but calls himself The Teacher. And then we have Jesus, Rabbi, the teacher, in John 3, having a conversation with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And so these themes are coming together. And the question here is about the nature of the kingdom of God, because Nicodemus is caught off guard. He doesn't expect Messiah to be a former construction worker from a little town, Nazareth, who supersedes all of the um, manner by which you become a recognized teacher, but is now teaching and teaching in ways that no one has and collecting disciples in a way no one does and doing miracles that no one's ever seen. And so he's coming under the cover of darkness to interview Jesus, to discover the nature and character of um, his teaching and his ministry. And Jesus brings in the kingdom of God and he starts to talk about the miracle of what God was going to do that Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, didn't understand. And that is that Israel, as God's chosen people who are meant to represent what Humanity is really supposed to be about and having a connection with God through faith that's transformative and that would function in a way to be light to the rest of the world. This is what it looks like to be truly human. This is what God's society looks like. This is what God's structures, institutions, families, way of life, ethics. This is a demonstration of it. Of course, Israel continues to fail at that. There's always a faithful remnant, and there's always a response and a return, and God's always redeeming and forgiving his people. But in their history, they they can't do that. And the prophets reveal that's because of the human heart problem. And so there's a tension, there's a a dilemma, there, there's a disconnect between God and man, and there's no one, as Job 9 says, to lay a hand on us both, to be a mediator and an intercessor. And so Jesus arrives as the God-man. He's fully God and representing God and capable of uh, making good on all of God's promises, but he's also fully man and an Israelite and representing all of Israel and all of humanity. And so he bridges the disconnect between God and man in a way that the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel 37 talks about a new spirit, uh, and Jeremiah 31, a new heart. Uh, Isaiah talks about it again and again and again in various different ways about what God would do to um, bring to life that which is dead. And all there's all, all you set free captivity. There's all these different images throughout the prophets. And Jesus is coming to Nicodemus to describe, listen, I'm not just here to teach you and teach you new things that you can do and therefore be faithful and be saved and redeemed and God fulfills his purpose. I'm actually here to be something for you that you're not. And so I'm here to reveal something from heaven. And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? And so he says, you need a miracle of rebirth. You need the wind to blow and to come alive um, spiritually. And this is what he calls being born again. And he ties that to the activity of the spirit, which in Greek is pneuma and in Hebrew is ruach. And it's the same word for spirit as, as breath. And so it's the life of God. And so when Adam is formed from the dust of the ground, God breathes life into him. And so the aliveness and of humanity and the, the the faculties that we've been given being made in the image of god are connected to his spirit and our spirit and the disconnect between our spirit and his spirit and now jesus is reconnecting that um by by becoming an atoning sacrifice so that we can be cleansed and then the holy spirit then applies this new reality to our hearts through faith and we have a mystical and spiritual union with christ that now makes us alive to god and so this is all new categories for the teacher of Israel. And so Jesus is really uh, filling out what was a temporary prescription from the end of Ecclesiastes. fear God, keep his commandments, he'll sort it all out, don't worry about what's out of your control and what seems wrong, God's got that and that's coming in the future. And that was kind of the prescription, summary prescription of Ecclesiastes. Now Jesus is having this conversation and he says three times, truly, truly, I say to you, and he lays out these statements for Nicodemus to receive. And the third of which he starts to have this conversation with nicodemus about proverbs 30 which is asking the question of how are we supposed to have true knowledge about god we can't because we can't go up to god and come back and and tell everybody else so we're looking to a teacher who has gone to heaven and come back down who can then reveal to us what is can be known about god that's hidden from us and this this is the tension and jesus says like i didn't go up to come back down i came from up there and now i'm down here and so he's revealing to Nicodemus the nature of his um, self-knowledge and his mission and his equality with God. And so he is now a teacher to the teacher of teachers, and he is bringing m- more understanding where the understanding of Solomon ended. And so this was this was the point of the sermon. And so I kind of called the sermon, Trust the Teacher. This is the the, the title here is Trust the Teacher. Ecclesiastes brings you to the point where you recognize you need a teacher because there is a God and you are not him. And there's a lot in this world we can't understand. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all living life in this tension between um, what it is I have to do every day in order to fulfill my duties and roles. And what does love require of me as I'm living in this world and how am I productive and how am I fulfilling the daily mandates of God and being a faithful person Um, with what is going on in this universe, this eternity, this eternal story, and then what's my part in it, you know, and um, there's a few things that really bring us to that awareness, sometimes we need to be snapped into that awareness, other times we find ourselves, you know, dragged into it, I mentioned laying in bed at night, and just, you have these kind of big theological or philosophical thoughts that emerge from feelings, and am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and is this all there is to it, and How much, you know, my priorities off, we we experience all these feelings. And, um, And so this is kind of like the same tension that we kind of brought ourselves into. And yes, fear God and keep his commandments. That's great advice. But we have new news, better news, greater news, fuller knowledge of the Holy One, Proverbs 30. And Jesus brings that to us. And we have to come to him as the teacher. And this is why he has said to us in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, into all the nations and preach the gospel. And he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're bringing through baptism the sacrament of our union with Christ, um, a relationship with the one true God as now um, known to us, expressed as Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then we're learning. So you're teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so you have this uh, extension of... Fear God, keep his commandments. Jesus said, You abide in my word, keep my commandments. And so John uh, really seemed to get the thrust of Ecclesiastes. And so you're going to find a lot of these themes running through John's gospel. And so some of the stuff that we didn't get to um, in the sermon, which I'd love to talk about, and then a couple questions I had from um, our listeners. I want to talk about, I didn't really get to talk too much about the Holy Spirit as teacher. I talked about Jesus as teacher and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, But there's a whole theme running through John's gospel uh, where we're meant to have an experience of the Holy Spirit as teacher in an ongoing way. Not just constrained to the red letters of the New Testament, uh, the words of Jesus as our teacher, or what Paul and the apostles understood the teaching of Jesus to be applied to in the New Testament epistles. So just want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about um, this issue of authorship of Ecclesiastes. So I mentioned this in, I believe, the first and or third service that um, there's some disagreement about the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Part of the reason is um, Solomon does not name himself. It does not say Solomon anywhere inside of the book. It says Kohelet, but it does say the son of David and the king of Israel. So those are clues. And then in chapter two, um, the writer also says, I... I had access to everything I I held back nothing and then he lists all these things he did which were synonymous with the things that we read in Kings that Solomon did and so a cursory reading of Ecclesiastes you're going oh this is obviously Solomon so when there's a hesitancy to accept that date there's got to be some or that author and that date there's got to be some reasons for it so some critical scholars want to create a later date for everything so all of the Jewish writings to some critical scholars happened post-Babylonian exi- post exile. And so all of what was essentially oral tradition was culminated together in like the fourth century BC uh, as propaganda for a Zionist movement to return to Israel and a justification for ownership of land. And a lot of you probably don't know any about this stuff, care about this stuff, but this is if you're going into university and particularly into liberal um, seminary environments, this is the kind of stuff you're going to get. There's all these different sources and you get these different schools of thought and you got the Yahwistics and you got the the priest class and there's these different people with different um, political motivations uh, that are fighting over who's going to have control and so these these books end up compiled based on who had the power and so on and so forth. Most of it's garbage so don't worry about it but it is helpful to take Ecclesiastes kind of as an example of how some of this thought works out. So I mentioned this in two of the services that Ecclesiastes has basically a a cover, has a prologue and a conclusion, and what sets them apart is the voice. So the first chapters up through verse 11, the author, who could be seen as a different person than the preacher, is speaking about the preacher in the third person, and then you get to 12, and then the preacher or the teacher takes on the first person. And so you go okay something different is there's a little shift happening here and the same thing happens in chapter 12 and verse 9 where you leave the first person and you go back to the third person so some people will say um this is basically there's a couple different options one would be that this is kind of like job and the majority of the pessimism of the journey and pursuit and the paradoxes listed by quote unquote the preacher solomon in the majority of the book is actually meant to be discarded that you're supposed to read all that and go, oh, that seems right, but it's really just almost right. And then, really, the author's intent is only chapter one and the end of chapter twelve. That's it. And so the rest of it is just misleading, close to wisdom, but not really. And there's some people who read it that way and come to that conclusion. I don't. I don't think that's the case. Um, and then other people will say um, this was some work of Solomon, who then a later author um, wrote the preface and the and the conclusion, and then package them up. And this was as kind of a late date. And so you have the author as one person and the preacher is someone else. So there's a lot of people who read it that way. The way I see it um, is that this is more than likely Solomon, who's the writer of all of it. And I'm guessing that Solomon wrote the majority of the middle section of the book over the course of years. And then like many of us who have experienced a lot of things, shelved it, put those ideas on ice And then at some point had some experiences that unlocked that experience and that journey and those conclusions and those paradoxes. And so he himself, writing now in the third person, wrote the introduction and the conclusion and then offers this entire work as young Solomon and old Solomon or things that I learned for a while that I waited until I drew a conclusion on and then here's the final conclusion. And that seems to square with me a whole lot better Um, and make sense of the change in voice. So I was explaining that to somebody after the third service. They had some questions about that. I really do think that that is the most likely case and it helps you uh, journey through Ecclesiastes and to come into the experience of Solomon and to sit in some of the tensions of the paradoxes that he's experiencing without drawing some conclusions. Now he does draw a number of different conclusions um, throughout the book. And I didn't really, I touched on a few of them in passing, but I didn't like give them um, a lot of thought. Um, but the first conclusion he comes to is, listen, whatever life you're living, receive what God gives you as the gift that it is. And so, you know, whoever, if if God made you a man, be a man. If God made you a woman, be a woman. If God made you in a low, low income third world country, enjoy everything about that country. If God puts you in a place of influence and power, don't be afraid to receive the gifts that God has given you. there's something really freeing about that because we live in a world where there's a lot of comparison and there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of power struggle. And so I just love this. He says, everything you have, every bit of life, your kids, your family, every season, there's just good things from God in everything. There's always hard things. There's always tragedy. There's always struggle. But there's plenty of things that God has given you. And so just receive what God gives you as the gift that it is. Um, And I think the Apostle Paul Picks up on this too in 1 Corinthians seven, where he talks about like just accepting your calling from God for wherever you are. If you're if you came to be uh, a Jesus follower and you came to life spiritually when you were a slave, then just be a slave. If you are a free man, then be a free man. He says you don't. There's no there's no um, connection between being free and being set free spiritually. And so you can be. You can be a bond servant, or you can be, you know, low income, or you can be, you don't have to get to some place to prove that you have a thing. So he's saying, just accept where you are. And then he adds some caveats. Listen, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom, fine. But you don't need to get your freedom in order to be who God has made you to be. In fact, um, the, the Christian who's a slave is the most free person there is. And a free person who owns slaves in this generation is under bondage, actually. And so he goes on to say, like, there's there's two different worlds that we're living in. There's the here and now, and there's the eternal. And and if you've received Christ in the eternal, you have everything that you need, no matter where you're at. And so stay put. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. You don't have to change any of these things because of you following Jesus. This makes sense. So um, Solomon has the same kind of conclusion. He also reaches this conclusion, which I talked about in the first service, that death is the great equalizer. That like, ultimately, doesn't matter what your life looks like, how powerful, influential, wealthy, you're gonna die. Everyone's gonna die, everyone dies, and no one is even remembered hardly. And uh, we've even seen that in our generation. People who we revered in, when I was a student um, now are being erased from history and the statues are being torn down and history is being rewritten. And you know, once you're gone, like you are gone, and your memory at best is uh, a manipulatable um, bit of information to be used by those who are alive. And so um, you're not really as important as you might think that you are. And so there's a great humility. Um, The only one who's greater or lesser than you is God himself. And so fear the Lord, keep his commandments, let him sort out the rest. And um, death has a way of doing that. And when we contemplate death and we're faced with death, it really does have a great humbling effect. And it helps us to be uh, set free to love the person who's in front of us for just who they are without needing anything from them, without needing to feel better than them, without being intimidated by them being better than you. So we're all the same. And then one of the other conclusions is to just recognize that there's stuff that only God knows. So get used to saying God only knows because so much of, of what can be known isn't uh, known to anybody except God. Uh, we see this in chapter 11 where um, Solomon writes, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. This is a picture of um, sending out your um, your grain and sending it on different ships to different areas because you don't know which ones of them are going to sink and you'll never see it again and which ones are going to go and sell and bring back a profit. And so he's basically saying diversify because you have no control over anything and you have no idea what the future holds. So this is the the little bit of wisdom that you're getting in there. And it's, God only knows it's above your pay grade and don't try to figure it out. You won't, you won't ever figure it out. Um, So don't think you're right about everything. God only knows. So there's a bunch of these little conclusions throughout the letter. And ultimately they culminate in this prescription to fear God, keep his commandments, and that he's going to sort all things out. But it does bring us to a couple questions first and foremost about, okay, did Solomon write this book? How are we supposed to take it? And some people don't know this, but there's a whole genre of um, ancient writings called the pseudepigrapha. And pseudepigrapha means uh, false name, uh, falsely named or no name uh, scriptures. And um, there are, in fact, um, works of antiquity who carry the name of a known author, but were not written by that known author. So the Testament of Job, um, one Enoch in the in the New Testament era, the Gospel of Thomas from about 250 A.D., These are um, works of literature that are dependent upon uh, an antecedent, a pre-existing work of literature, and the author takes takes the title of the original author. So Thomas was a real person, but Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas. Somebody wrote the Gospel of Thomas, and they took a lot of what they had from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and then they added a bunch of their own stuff, and they called themselves Thomas, and then they gave us the Gospel of Thomas. Nobody at the time of that writing thought Thomas wrote the Gospel of Thomas. It would be the same today as, you know, we had the original Star Wars movies. And then, of course, George Lucas comes back to give us the ones on the either side of episodes three, uh, four, five and six. But now we have this Disney buys Star Wars and now you have the Star Wars brand. And you have all of these different Star Wars movies that are coming out and Star Wars shows and Star Wars backstories and side stories. And George Lucas isn't involved in any of them, but they carry the Star Wars name. And so we're benefiting upon a storyline which came to us from an actual person, and now new people are writing under the same genre and storyline and titles. This is essentially pseudepigrapha. And this is known. It's not a lie. It's not trying to trick anybody. It's just saying, I'm writing I'm writing in continuation of this tradition that everybody's aware of. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand about pseudepigrapha is that um, this was like commonly accepted these like the people were typically under whoever they were writing under so if you if i sat under you for 40 years and you passed away and i started writing for you and i could write for you mm-hmm. and that'd be pseudopagrapha. but that was in jesus's day was common yeah. and acceptable yeah like so don't freak out like your whole bible's not false yeah and this is the <laughs> this is the dan brown um da vinci code kind of scare tactic to go like you can't trust anything it's all you know you no. there's a great rich historic tradition of where the canonical the the official letters came from and how we got them and all the different people in the first century who agreed that these were in fact scripture and so on and so forth internal testimony and all the pieces we could talk about it and we'll have a whole podcast about it at some point but it's very 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 clear very easy to to uncover it's not hidden and yes there were all these other books and the reason they're not in the bible is not because they're not worth reading some of them are kind of weird Um, But, it's because they're not scripture, they never claimed to be scripture, no one ever thought they were scripture. And so, we still have them, there's loads of them, in fact, if you go on Wikipedia, you can look for a list of Old Testament pseudepigrapha, New Testament pseudepigrapha, there's dozens and dozens and dozens, and we have copies of them, so you can read them for yourself, and you will notice the difference. But Ecclesiastes is not pseudepigrapha, and part of the reason we know that, um, it doesn't actually have a title, it doesn't claim authorship of Solomon. so. That even in a genre of pseudepigrapha, you would be saying, like, the wisdom of Solomon, and then it would not be Solomon. Ecclesiastes is the teacher, so um, he kind of, like, clothes himself in anonymity on purpose, even though it's clear who the author is. So it doesn't even fit, but um, I'm, like, 99% certain that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and I think the way that I presented it is um, a, a worthwhile way of understanding it. So um, that kind of brings us back to one of the main... Um, themes of the book and it has to do with this breathing in, breathing out. So I mentioned in the Sunday sermon, um, vanity of vanities, all is vanity or meaninglessness, meaninglessness, everything is meaninglessness. Those aren't really great words in English to capture the Hebrew word Hevel, which is breath, uh, vapor. And the picture here is kind of like smoke. Like you can see it, like maybe even seeing your breath in the cold, you can see it. It's, it's, it's there. You can feel it, but it's gone so quickly. And so it's kind of like, it grabs a hold of the fleeting nature of breath, Um, the the brevity of a breath as it breathes out and then it's gone. And so there's a futility that's there as like a connotation, but it's the fleeting nature um, and the inability to grasp it. And so you get this picture also of chasing after the wind or trying to grasp the wind. And these themes roll through the frustration of our experience of life, that there's something in us, this life from God, this sense of God's of realness, of eternity that's been placed in our hearts, that's there. And yet we have this puzzling and and um, really perplexing experience of life being so difficult to hold on to that we're stuck in this moment that is the presence, this, this uh, under the sun existence, where we remember the past, but it's gone out of our reach. And we perceive the coming future, but we have no control over it. And we're aware that there's so much more than what we can perceive, but we have no way of grasping that knowledge. And so this is Hevel. This is this is that f- super frustrating intangibleness of our awareness. And so you go through this whole book. And then of course, Jesus in John three with Nicodemus, he's going to kind of supersede or supplant that concept with what God is doing through Messiah. And that is that the wind of the spirit, the pneuma, Is blowing and bringing about this new life, which is characterized by that first breath of an infant. And we had four; we've had four children, and it's still it's stunning to me to consider the birthing process, where a child is delivered, who in one moment is in its mother's womb, dependent on her blood supply, being completely nourished through the umbilical cord, and not breathing, and then that child being birthed, and then in a moment, breathing their first breath, letting out a scream. And then within, within just a couple of minutes, they're no longer being nourished from the placenta. They have their own circulatory system, not dependent on mom, that the umbilical cord is severed and begins to heal up and falls off in a couple of weeks and their own independent life is born. And Jesus is saying your spiritual life is going to be like that too. You're going to go from being uh, in a world that's Totally covered. You're in darkness. You're dependent. You don't have independent life, and now you're going to have this moment that is this breathe in moment that God is is fulfilling, and He's doing that through Messiah, the Holy One that Proverbs thirty is pondering about, the one who knows the heavenly things because He came from heaven, and so we can trust Him as the teacher. He's the one that brings us to life. He's the one by whose death we live, and He's also the one who cleanses us, um, and through His life death resurrection and ascension because as he's ascended and takes a place of authority this is when he sends the holy spirit and so one of the things i didn't get to talk about in uh, the sermon was this theme of um, i talked about trust the teacher with jesus as the teacher and i talked about the wind of the spirit and the, the role of the holy spirit but john carries this on in uh, john 14 to talk about the holy spirit as a teacher and so we're, we're trusting the teacher, but I don't want to confine that simply to the red letters in your New Testament, that Jesus is the teacher. And so whatever Jesus says, you can trust, or even we have the word of God and what the apostles understood those words and teachings of Jesus to mean and how they were expressed in the first century. And so like the scriptures become the teacher. No, the, t- the God does teach us through the words of Jesus. God does teach us through the New Testament, but John... Tells us that Jesus' ascension after his resurrection uh, empowered him and cleansed us to send another helper. So, John 14, 15 to 18, Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This sounds like, Fear God, keep his commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, the one that are not cleansed, they're not alive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so the, the apostles, the disciples had had some experience of being around the spirit of God at work in and through the person of Jesus. They had been in proximity to the spirit, but because Jesus hadn't died and been raised and ascended, the Holy Spirit wasn't in them. And so that of course happens at the day of Pentecost when they become filled with the spirit. Verse 18, he ends by saying, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so there's this, this dual nature, the the fullness of God expressed to us in the person of the Holy Spirit is Jesus himself in a really interesting way. And then he continues this line in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so he has this, this dual role of teaching of teaching you and bringing to remembrance and this is really important um it's really important especially i love the way that the, the show the chosen is capturing this there's this kind of like ongoing theme of who was where writing what down when things happen and they've been really good whoever the writers and producers of this of this series are have been really good about um showing what you know where this information came from the things that matthew includes in his gospel that he did not have privy knowledge to and where that knowledge came from and the closeness of those relationships and you know they even picture in this in the scene where nicodemus and jesus are having this rooftop uh, under the cover of darkness conversation there's this little cutaway scene where john's scribbling on a piece of paper on the stairs well beneath them and he's interrupted and he goes Shh. And like he's i'm trying to write this down you know and you're you're they're showing like okay these things came to the disciples but they didn't get it all down on paper they weren't writing they weren't transcribing the events as they happened but the Holy Spirit did bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus said. And in the collective nature of the 12 of them being together, at least the three of them, all of them were there hearing these things together. And they had their own memories and their own experience uh, facilitated by the Holy Spirit to solidify what has become for us the Gospels. And so the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance for the disciples what Jesus had said. But he also is there to teach you all things. So there's lots of things that Jesus didn't say. But the Holy Spirit actually helps those connections to come together. And so we're incredibly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Even in our reading the Bible in six months, we're reading with uh, our Bibles open, but also our hearts open and our ears open to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and to let God speak to us through his word and by his spirit uh, on the inside of us. And like we need that, and he is the teacher. In fact, 1 John 2, 26 and 27 where the Apostle John is writing to this church. He's saying, listen, you have these people who are trying to deceive you. And he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive, that's the same word for Christ, the same word for Messiah. You, you, you've received this anointing as well um, from him who abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything that is true and is no lie just as just as it is <clears throat> excuse me just as it has taught you abide in him and so he's just going right back to say like you have everything you need in your relationship with Jesus and by the power of the holy spirit to teach you and there's an anointing that's upon you because of your connection with Jesus and there's a teaching component of the holy spirit and you need to make sure that you're not finding yourself dependent on some human teacher and just taking their answers, this is what's going to position you for being led astray. And so you don't need a, you don't need a teacher, you don't need a Bible teacher like me. You don't need whatever YouTube teacher. And this is one of the things that's so frustrating to me is there's so many teachers out there. And you know, all of us have great things to say. Some of the things we say are off. We don't know where we're not right. Um, but there's all these you know YouTube channels that are just criticizing this teacher as a heretic and this person as a false gospel and picking apart every little thing they say. You don't, need, you don't need any of those critic videos because you don't need any of those teachers to help you understand God. You have the teacher, you have the scriptures, you have the Holy Spirit. If those people help you, great. A lot of the stuff they say may be really fruitful and helpful, but they also will say stuff they're wrong about because they're not Jesus and they're not the Holy Spirit. And so we're doing our best. I'm always doing my best to stay very close to what the scriptures actually say. I'm not trying to tell you what I think. I'm not trying to tell you what I've learned. I'm not trying to tell you what my experience has been. I'm just trying to tell you what the scriptures say and help that apply to the life that we're all walking through and living here together. And so um, in one sense, I think we need to make sure we don't have any teachers up on a pedestal that we're not idolizing any influencers to go. This person has some insight, access divine revelation and therefore they are special and other. And I, I am looking to them to receive something from them. That is, there is no human on the planet that you should feel that way towards. And then likewise, if, someone, if you like listening to somebody, great, listen to them, but some, some of the stuff they say is going to be off. And so you don't, you don't need somebody making a, a fortune on their YouTube channel monetized to just pick on the biggest superstar preachers. And just don't waste your time with that stuff. Yeah, you'll know if it's not right. You got the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so I know it's not very popular to, to say uh, everything's mostly fine. Don't worry about it. That's not going to sell books, but it is the truth. And that, that is the truth of having the Holy Spirit as our teacher. So that's my little recap on Ecclesiastes, a couple of the little things we didn't get to talk about and the Holy Spirit as teacher. Um, I do want to talk about what came to me in a letter slash question from Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca, for following and for writing. I absolutely love getting um, feedback. And I love also when you guys are sharing your thoughts about things. Uh, it really, it's awesome for me too, just to just to think about how you're thinking about what we're reading together. So thanks for sharing. Um, she is asking, and this is kind of like a paragraph question, but just the struggle with the temp- temporary feelings of life and the balance between the nuts and bolts of what we have to do every day and living inside of this big picture. And I was having the same conversation with my younger brother yesterday. Um, our our, our first cousin, Nick, passed away suddenly on Saturday afternoon, 42 years old, and just celebrated his daughter's birthday. Um, just a total shock to our family, just heartbreaking. Um, and again, the the reality of the uncertainty of life and and death itself, and how that brings us to a place of evaluation, of like really thinking about that eternity that God's placed in our hearts to go, man, my, my days could be over immediately, and am I living in a way in the moment under the sun with the people that I know and love in a way that is like at the fullest today? And so like him and my brother and I were having this conversation uh, yesterday on the phone. And then Rebecca is asking the same question. Like, you know, sometimes it feels like the things we're giving our time and attention to are so trivial like decorating your house or writing a novel when, you know, we have world hunger to solve and there's wars breaking out and, you know, there's there's unreached people groups. And so we, we're living in this tension between the smallness and the nuts and bolts of life and the bigness of the eternal purposes of God. And we're kind of holding one in one hand, one in the other. And this is part of that paradoxical tension that Solomon taps into in Ecclesiastes. He's saying everything's beautiful and it's time. There's a time for war and a time for peace. It's a time for life, a time for death, a time to kill and a time to heal. The, these things are real. And so you're going to hold on to them. And then you're also going to have eternity placed in your heart. So here's this tension, and I want to I want to I want to comfort um, the disturbed, and I want to disturb the comfortable with what I'm going to say next. Um, if you're disturbed, I want to comfort you. I was trying to comfort my brother a little bit yesterday because um, my my younger brother is just a he's just a phenomenal human. Everybody that knows him loves him. He's super hardworking. He's very others-centered. He's super hospitable. He's one of the most generous people that I've ever met. Um, he he cares about people so deeply and truly. Has got a huge heart, and he lives his life that way. You know, he knows every every. I go into New Smart all the time, and I meet people, and they see my last name. You know, Casey Jarvis. Yeah, yeah, I know Casey Jarvis, my little brother. Um, everybody who knows him likes him. He's incredibly long suffering and patient and sees the best in people and wants people to experience god's best for them and man just cannot say enough good things about him and then yesterday we're talking and he's going man is it enough what i'm doing is it enough and it seems like there's so much more to be done done, and i just get in these little ruts of you know whatever it is this bad habit or this thing and this small-mindedness and these kind of things snap me out of it and and i really wanted to say to him i I did say to him um like you're doing great (laughs) Like you're doing exactly what God put you here to do, you're you're having an enormous positive impact on the people who are closest to you. You love your wife, you love your daughters. You're you're stepping into grandfatherhood um, like a boss. Um, the people that work for you, like you run a, you run a stellar business. You have integrity, faithfulness. Like you care, you take care of people. Um, you're not just after the bottom line. So I was just trying to encourage him in some of the ways that I really see him um, living out his calling, and. And, and that's a huge comfort a lot of us need, because sometimes we feel like we're not doing enough. We're not fulfilling our purpose. There's something we should be doing that's more. And then sometimes we can even tie that into our salvation. You know, you go through a season where you're not focused on the Lord. You're not focused on your purpose. You're focused on something small or some pain or some annoyance. And then you kind of like get nearsighted and and narrow-minded. And then you kind of pop up and go, oh no, I'm in trouble. And does, does God accept me? And the, the reality is, is your how well you're doing has nothing to do with God's acceptance of you. It has everything to do with Jesus. This was Bill's exhortation on Sunday morning in all three services to start off by going, "You being here does nothing for your salvation. You are you are here because you get to be here because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done." And like we need that reminder regularly. That's the reality. But then also like. You wanna recognize that God puts you on this purpose or on this planet with a purpose, and part of that purpose involves you getting to sleep at night and waking up and brushing your teeth and drinking your coffee and making your kids oatmeal and and keeping your yard mode and being a neighbor and going to work and producing something that's meaningful to somebody and making our world flow and there needs to be millions and billions of people doing this to have a flourishing planet. With a connection with God, it's not just about the doing; it's about you knowing God, you walking with God, you being who God's called you to be. But it isn't—it uh, isn't all um, sanctimonious. Sometimes it's just very gritty. Sometimes it's just, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year of faithful, you know, morning prayers and evening prayers, and and doing business and doing what's right, even when it's hard, and trusting God in difficult times, and leaning into that relationship with with other people. And it really doesn't look that impressive. It can look real small. And it could look like tired Mondays and too many cups of coffee, but I got it done and love the kids and kiss my wife goodnight. And like, yep, that's it. And so if you find yourself disturbed by Ecclesiastes or by the loss of a loved one, like I want you to be comforted that that's, this is part of just life. It's in the nuts and bolts. However, now I'm going to disturb the comfortable. You might be here. I'm thinking I'm very satisfied doing what I want to do living my life, pursuing my plans, have my little small world that I live in, don't really care about too much else, and I've got my goals, and I'm living this, and you're very comfortable, and you're not disturbed, you're not reading Ecclesiastes, you're not uh, facing down death, um, you may be wasting your life. And so I want to disturb you just a little tiny bit. Because while life is lived in the minutiae, in the details, in the moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, There's also a grandness to what you've been called into. This is that eternity placed in your hearts. Um, There are people across the planet who need you to be who God made you to be. And if you are focused on you, and if you are focused on your small world, and if you are not pursuing a relationship with God, where that relationship and that abiding results in you having a perspective that's bigger than yourself, um, then I want to disturb you. Because you may be too comfortable. I want to pry you up off the proverbial sofa of your soul and say, get in the game because the world needs who you were made to be. And so Ecclesiastes has a way of doing that. It brings about the frustration and the inequality and the injustice in the world and the tumult and the war and the bigness of things that are outside of our control. And it calls us to recognize there's so much more going on than we have access to understand or to control. And yet, we have a fundamental part to play in it, in as much as we are aligning ourselves with the person of God and the purpose of God. And so, you need to do the same thing every day. This is one of the reasons I want to provoke people to read the Bible, to read the Bible every day, and to be ambitious in your experience of it. And so, we're reading it in six months. That's a that's a very fast pace. Um, I think I'm going to do a year next time and just slow down a little bit. Um, This is two times two times in a row of six months, and. Uh, It's been a little frustrating because some things you want to slow down and and hang out on, but we need to be proactive in doing that. And if you're not doing that, I just want to give you a little kick in the pants. So you probably haven't gotten this far into the podcast if that's not you already. So I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but that's the message. The message is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And um, Rebecca, I think you're spot on. I think trying to find that balance between uh, resting in God, being still, knowing he's God that, that this this life on earth is a vapor and just trying to balance the stuff we have to do and get to do with the, the bigness of what God's called us into, recognizing that we can't control everything. Um, we, we aren't responsible for everything. There's so much above our pay grade, but we're going to be faithful with whatever little bit God puts in our hands, you know. And that's, that's I think um, maybe one of the things I didn't really cover in this message is what Jesus um, talks about in the parable of the Minas where he gives a mina to each of these individuals, these servants, these 10 servants, and then they go out and they turn that mina into something else. And then based on their profitability, he then assigns them the rulership of, of cities. And so this is part of our life. Like our life on earth counts, not just for the wiping of snotty noses and the making of oatmeal and the vacuuming out of the car and the mowing of the grass, but the little things you are faithful in is going to position you in eternity for the oversight of what God is calling you to step into. And so like, there's a lot we don't know about the future. Scriptures make references to us, judging angels, judging between angels, other heavenly beings that are be looking to a glorified human for the wisdom and the discernment to come to a conclusion about very complex matters. And so we are all in training for eternity. And so you have to recognize that that is a part of your life too. And so God's after faithfulness, he's saying, if you'll be faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. So even if you feel like a lot's out of your control and you don't have a lot of influence, recognize that everything that's in your hands is in your hands from God and he's watching to see what you will do with it. And so if that's you know, a stucco company or church and if that's a real estate brokerage uh, or you're a nurse, whatever it is God's called you to do, do it with all your might, Solomon would say. And uh, so that's some of the lessons from Ecclesiastes, and uh, some musings about the bigness and the smallness of life. Hmm. Guys, I really enjoy this uh, little monologue here, and uh, I've, loved, I've loved watching Bill's facial expressions. He hasn't said a lot in this podcast episode, but it's fun to watch him think. Anything on your mind before we end, Bill? It's all vanity. <laughs> no, I, got some, I got some questions, some gears turning, but yeah. um, no, I don't have anything that I think that pertains to what we talked about. Well, we're going to be um, talking in a week about uh, Isaiah. So, we don't have a sermon coming up, as I mentioned, but um, we're going to read through Isaiah. And so, a couple little tidbits for you as you're reading. Um, Sometimes Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. There's so much messianic prophecy in there that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus that really, when you're reading at this pace, you'll start to really see Jesus popping out everywhere. Um, Isaiah is also kind of like a little microcosm of the whole Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and there's 66 chapters of Isaiah. The first 39 are of a certain type, and then um, the back 27 are different, which is kind of like an Old Testament and a New Testament. You probably noticed that if you've already gotten through Isaiah uh, 1 to 39. So there's a very much judgmental um, uh, warning tone in chapters 1 through 39. And then comfort, oh comfort, we get in chapter 40 and verse 1. And then everything that comes after that is, is um, hopeful and messianic and redemptive and uh, promissory and beautiful and forecasting the, the, the beauty of all things and a call towards humility and return and repentance and dependence and faith. And um, so you're going to see that kind of Old Testament, New Testament. Um, And then, obviously, there's going to be all sorts of little references. Um, I'm right now writing a sermon from Isaiah 28 and and Isaiah 55, so maybe if you're going to go back and read, check out those two chapters, and um, maybe in two weeks on Sunday, you'll get to hear one of those preached. But um, it's a beautiful book, and I'm really enjoying this process with you guys. So we welcome your questions. Absolutely love hearing from you. And you do have to have questions, too, if you have encouragements, thoughts, testimonies, Uh, things that may be helpful or beneficial, encouraging to other listeners, feel free to send them our way. You can email me, Jesse, at joinwithjesus, and I would love to hear from you. So thanks so much for following along, and we will see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.